We're working through a series throughout this summer called Knowing God by Name. Uh, And in that, we're exploring the different names of God that appear throughout the Hebrew Bible in particular. And we're looking at what that name represents and tells us about who God is and what it means for us. Not that we can know about God in some abstract, theologically uh, removed kind of way, but that we may know God in a deep, personal, and intimate scenario. Um, So we can hear God's name. Uh, And so I invite you to listen as we hear our scripture read for us this morning. This morning our scripture is from Genesis 22, verses 1 through 14. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he said. Then God said, take your son, your only son, the son you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah, sacrifice him there, as a burnt offering on a mountain that I will show you. So early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded the donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place that God told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and he saw the place in the distance. And he said to the servants, You stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship, and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering, and he placed it on his son, Isaac. And he carried it. He himself carried the fire and the knife. And as the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Father? Yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two went on together. When they reached the place that God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there, and he arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up and there Right in the thicket, he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as the burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day, it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. This is the word of the Lord. I've never been a great sleeper. Uh, in, in life, this has been both a blessing and a curse, depending on the age and stage and season I was in. When I was in college, uh, I remember my freshman year, fall of my freshman year, the number of times I went to bed before midnight, because I could count them because they were so few, because I decided I just didn't need that much sleep. Turns out it was three, three times that fall semester. I went to bed before midnight the entire year. Spring semester, I thought, well, let's run an experiment and see how long I can run 
on uh, a little amount of sleep. I don't know the degree to which I thought this out ahead of time and more so at two in the morning thought I should go to bed, but instead I decided to go talk with new friends or make new friends or see people over there and went over and made conversation rather than go to bed. So I spent six weeks uh, going on four hours of sleep a night. That went about as well as you'd think it would. And at about six weeks, I started spontaneously falling asleep in class during lunch. Uh, Yeah, Uh, I'm looking at Jennifer Holberg because not that I ever had you as a professor, but I still feel guilty admitting this in front of a group of people. And I woke up to one time, I had a poli-sci professor, I remember. I was sitting in the, at some stage, I was forcing myself to try to stay awake, to compensate for my bad decisions in the middle of the night. So I would sit in the front row to try to add some peer pressure. And I woke up to the comment, what is your opinion on that, Mr. Wall? And I thought, oh, dear Lord, I'm done. It wasn't quite as handy when we had little kids. Uh, My kids are still little, they're six and four, but when we had babies and newborns, and especially when we had newborn twin girls, uh, and I would be up to help or to feed or to do the things that you do with newborns at three in the morning or four in the morning or whenever it would come that evening, and I would look up and I would do my duty and I'd think, I should go back to bed. And now I'm awake. It was hardest when I was a teenager, when I was 16, 17, 18, I think that's when I, when I originally realized that I had a hard time sleeping and I didn't always sleep very well. And there would be nights where I would wake up. And maybe you've had this experience where you sit there and you go, okay, I know I have to get up in six hours. That turns to five, that turns to four, that turns to three. And as a 16-year-old kid, a 17-year-old kid, I would just have these thoughts that would run laps and laps around my head thoughts of being unworthy, thoughts of being unlovable, thoughts of self-harm and self-destruction, thoughts of depression. And maybe, well, maybe you've experienced that, maybe you haven't. I am willing to bet you've experienced something like on the other side when those thoughts run through my head as a kid. And I would think to myself and pray out loud, often crying, but not too much because I was a guy and we're not supposed to do that, right? But often crying and saying, God, why are you doing this to me? Why are you putting me through this? The name of God that we're working through this morning uh, is, is Jehovah Jireh, which means our God provides, which is the verse that we ended on in Abraham. And the story of Abraham that we're looking at with the binding of Isaac and the sacrifice of Isaac is a moment magnified multiple times where we kind of cry out and say, God, oh God, why are you doing this to me? In order to understand that though, uh, to to start, let's keep Abraham, uh, the father of nations and religions in, in mind so we can understand what's going on. Right? Abraham, we've talked about Abraham. If you've grown up in the church, you've heard story after story about Abraham. But broadly, the man was fairly wealthy. He was established. He owned uh, a variety of flocks and sheep. He had money. Uh, he had a wife who seemed to love him, and they had a good relationship as near as we can tell. But he did not have a son or an heir. 
uh, which mattered and mattered a lot at the time. So God says, speaks to him. The first person that God speaks to on, on his own outside of Adam and Eve that are created and made and God walks with them in the garden and then elsewhere, uh, God is setting the scene in many ways. The first person that God calls is Abraham. And so God speaks to him and calls him from the land he has known, from his father's land and territory, into somewhere new and into a new place. And Abraham goes and he follows. In over 15 years, Abraham follows God. And always God continues to promise that there will be a son and heir over a series of conversations, but not many. Three over about 15 years, God promises a son and an heir. Abraham has doubts and concerns, but Abraham follows and follows again. And finally, they give birth to a son. His wife, Sarah, gives birth to a son who they name Isaac, and, which means laughter. And laughter both in the fact that Abraham and, Abraham and Sarah at this stage are old and laughter in the fact that how could you believe this could occur? How could this not, how could this happen? This is totally unpredictable, unexpected. We know God said he would do this, but we didn't actually believe it. And so when the moment comes, we laugh spontaneously out of joy. This is his boy who we don't know how old he is, but he's probably somewhere in mid-childhood-ish, 8, 10, 12, maybe 6. And he takes his boy and he takes him up, uh, up to the mountain to be sacrificed in ways that is hard, in ways that is challenging, in ways that should shake us to some degree to our core. In Hebrew, this is called the Akedah, which means binding. Um, and the Akedah is called the binding, and it's a pivotal moment within the history of Judaism. You can actually, there, there are pages and pages that are written about this moment and this story that happens within the, the, the story of Abraham. When Abraham offers up his son, and there's long histories that explain it. And in many ways, we as Christians, when we think about issues of suffering and temptation and challenge in those moments when we cry out, God, why is this happening to me? We often look to Jesus and the point on the Mount of Olives where Jesus cries out, take this cup from me if it's your will, but if not, I will do it. Jews who don't have that often look to this. They look to the, to the binding, the sacrifice, the offering of the promised one to God. And it has a long history. It, it actually has shown up for millennia. It shows up again and again as a moment of tribulation, of trial, of hardship. It shows up actually in regards to the Holocaust in the wake of Nazi Germany. Uh, Eli Wiesel references it. It shows up again and again as this moment of hardship and pain. In the, the Rosh Hashanah liturgy, which is what they do to celebrate Jews, do to celebrate the new year as it comes in, it shows up in that where it says, Remember unto us, O Lord our God, the covenant and the loving kindness and the oath which thou swore unto Abraham our father on Mount Moriah. And consider the binding with which Abraham our father bound his son Isaac on the altar, how he suppressed his compassion in order to perform thy will with a perfect heart. So may thy compassion overbear thy anger against us. And in thy goodness, may thy great wrath turn aside from thy people, thy city, and thine inheritance. The Akedah, the binding, is a big deal. Because it's a moment of what in theological terms is called theodicy. Which is why do good things happen, bad things happen to good people? Why do we suffer? Or for 16-year-old me, why do I stay awake at night? 
feeling worthless and unloved. And often, the, the temptation we have, to some degree, within the story, within the text, what we hear is that God tested Abraham. And what does it mean for us as readers and hearers and livers in the world today? Why did God test Abraham? So I want to I wanna take that and I want to take a sharp left turn. I want you to hold on to that question and we'll swing back around to it in a minute. Um, but I want to ask you this. When you picture God, who or what do you see in your mind's eye, in your head? Who's there? Actually, I'm, I'm going to make it experimental. I'm going to make it interactive. I want you to close your eyes. And I really want you to just close your eyes. I invite you to close your eyes. And when I say picture God, who or what comes to mind? Do you see someone or something? What does that look like? All right, I want you to open your eyes and I'm gonna, it's, it's July 4th weekend, I can play around a little bit. I want you to find someone else and I want you to tell them what it is you saw or pictured or envisioned. What did that look like? I'm gonna give you a minute, so that's like 30 seconds a person or however you divide yourself up, but I'm gonna give you a minute and I want you to share what that picture looked like with someone else, okay? Go. Make a friend if you don't have someone. You're all nice people, even if I don't know you. 30-ish seconds left. Okay. Broadly, we as Americans, if we talk about who we think of and what it looks like, what we think God looks like if we were to draw it. As Americans, we're typically influenced by the European images often coming out of the Renaissance in regards to our ideas and understandings of God. They often are represented mostly by images that look kind of like this. Right? God is an old white dude with a beard. There's a sociologist I like by the name of Christian Smith. Uh, He talks about how peoples and groups function and form identity, who they are, and he's an American, and he wanted to study Americans' understanding of God and how, how was that formed. Because we as Americans, in case you did not know this, have, uh, it's not distinct to us, but it is in many ways unique to us, or it manifests itself pretty strongly within us on who and what we think God is. So Christian Smith, Dr. Smith goes through the work. He does surveys. He does qualitative. He does quantitative. He does a big survey and sample. And he comes up with the, the term that we have of understanding the American God uh, and the American understanding of religion as what he calls moralistic therapeutic deism. Moralistic, so let's break that down for a minute. Moralistic means that God and the American understanding, and if you want to know more, I can unpack it. Uh, it, His first book about this was called Saving Souls. I'm pretty sure that's what it's called. I'm forgetting off the top of my head. Uh, But I have copies of different books if you'd ever want to hear more. But moralistic basically means that we as Americans uh, often view God as someone who has a strong understanding of, of right and wrong, that there's right things and wrong things, and that God rewards and reinforces right and wrong behavior. So when we do good things, God gives us good stuff. When we do bad things, God gives us bad stuff. 
Therapeutic means that also that uh, God exists to, to take care of me, to help make me better, to help reinforce who I am and who I think I should be. And deism, deism broadly speaking is the idea is that there is some kind of God force out there in the eternity, but it is ultimately unknowing and unknowable. Not a personal God, not an intimate God, not a God with a sense of name or place, not a God with a strong sense of identity, more of a cosmic force. And what Christian Smith notes and what you see is that this really starts from a Christian understanding and a very biblical understanding to some degree of who God is, but then you layer on top of that uh, the Easter Bunny and Santa Claus uh, and that many other pop culture American myths on who we say we are, and we end up at this place of moralistic, therapeutic deism. But that gets really hard. If you think about it, if God exists to reward us when we do good things and punish us when we do bad things, that does not always square well with our experience of reality. Because I bet that you can think of moments in people who are great and have had horrible things happen to them where they cry out, God, why is this happening to me? And I also think that you can probably think of some people that they're okay, but they're not the greatest. But they seem to have a lot of money or stuff or power or success or pride or popularity. And if God exists to reward and reinforce the good things that we do and to punish the bad things that we do, then there's moments when we go, well, look, he's got a sports car, so he has to have good stuff going on. She has a cottage with a big boat on a lake. She's got to have it together. Elsewhere in American Christianity, this has gotten blown even further out of proportion in things that we call the prosperity gospel, which are just you name what you want and you pray for it and God will give you the stuff that you want, which is a misreading of scripture. And it's a misapplication of this understanding We think of God, we think of that God often as an old white man who sits to judge and reward us when we do good and punish us when we do bad. And in our moments of trial, of hardship, of tribulation, in our moments when you feel God has called you to take the promised heir that will bless the world and sacrifice him, it means that something is going wrong. If we understand God is an old white guy with a beard who sits to judge the rights and the wrongs of the world. The image I like more than that is actually one that comes from uh, Exodus in chapter 3, which I thought I had marked and then moved. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness, and he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames and fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn, so Moses thought, I will go over and see the strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. This image is actually from something that I love, uh, from a a kid's movie in the 90s called The Prince of Egypt. 
And in it, this is Moses. And Moses is wandering around and he wanders through into this little cove. And you can see that there's a bush that is on fire and filled with a presence. And he walks in and everything feels different and holy. The image that we get from scripture of what God looks like is this. Not the old white guy with a beard. And that matters because this is not moralistic, therapeutic deism. This is Jehovah Jireh. This is the presence of the universe that gets manifest and comes in and provides in the midst of our hardship, in the midst of confusion, in the midst of pain, not one who calls balls and strikes and says, you're doing great, you're doing poor. The God that we see that shows up is a God of presence who's around. Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides, doesn't mean that life uh, isn't easy somehow anymore. It just means that God is present. There's a, a professor at Duke uh, who She's probably about my age, I think, at this stage. She was in her mid-30s, and she suddenly got cancer, like a mat truck out of the blue. She had two small kids, just starting her career, bright, bright woman. And she had to grapple with what was life going to be because she was given a diagnosis of months to live, two small children. And so she wrote a book, basically for her kids, so that she could give them a memento and something to, to hold on to. And the book's called Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lies I've Loved. And she has this quote that's been echoing in my head for the last few weeks. As she wrestles with this about a God who provides in the midst of hardship, in the midst of pain, in the midst of whether we are Abraham or a teenage boy and we cry out, God, oh God, why are you doing this to me? she says, I can't reconcile the way that the world is jolted by events that are wonderful and terrible, the gorgeous and the tragic, except that I am beginning to believe that these opposites do not cancel each other out. I see a middle-aged woman in the waiting room of a cancer clinic, her arms wrapped around the frail frame of her son. She squeezes him tightly, oblivious to the way he looks down at her sheepishly. He laughs after a minute, a hostage to her impervious love. Joy persists somehow and I soak it in. The horror of cancer has made everything seem like it is painted in bright colors. I think the same thoughts again and again. Life is so beautiful. Life is so hard. When we say that God provides, we are not saying that the pain goes away. We are saying God is present and with us not as a judge to rule over us, not as a judge to, to say you had it coming. If only you had dot, dot, dot. But to say that God is with us and providing for us. There was a moment I will never forget. A couple of years ago, I was having a, a barbecue and uh, Chad Ferrand, who used to be a staff member here uh, and is a good friend, was over. And we were inviting some people over. And we just said, invite your friends. And whoever comes, comes. And this is all great. And so this woman comes. And she was a friend of a friend. And she shows up. And she's a little shaken. 
She heard what I did. and She heard I was a pastor. If you ever want to be a buzzkill at a party, just tell people you're a pastor. They'll leave you alone. <laughs> so she said, what do you do? I said, I'm a pastor. Chad's a pastor too. We chatted for a bit. And she starts shaking, sitting out, standing on my back deck, holding a cup in her hand. And turns out she had a fiance who suddenly got sick and died within six months. And she was grieving and she didn't know what to do. And she turns, this is at a barbecue, keep in mind. Like we're grilling, I'm running back and forth between hot dogs. And this woman says, where is he now? Where is my fiance? As tears run down her cheeks. And to be honest, I was caught flabbergasted. I thought, what do you say? How do you respond? And Chad, bless Chad, not missing a beat, says, he's with God, and God's with him. And they're together, and we don't know fully what that looks like, but we know that's where they are. And she just wept. Because God was providing God is not above you to test you or try you. When the hard, kind, hard times come, God is beside you. And this is the dynamic of faith. We follow God into unknown places and with unknown outcomes similar to Abraham, knowing through it all that God will provide. This is what it means to follow. Not that we believe in an abstract way or that we choose to join a social club or we choose to do something, but we believe and know and trust in our hearts that there is a God who will provide in the midst of hardship and pain. And provision does not mean that the pain goes away, but it means that God is present and shows up for us and with us. The call of God, my friends, always is to something new and always pulls us out. In the midst of hurting and pain, it soothes and comforts. In the midst of strength, it calls us into new territory, again, like Abraham, to explore where we go in order to stretch us, to challenge us, and so that we can encounter and rely upon God's provision. And that's what we're going to celebrate as we come in a few minutes to gather around the table. We come for a a tangible sign of an intangible thing. That God is present, that God provides, and provides in ways we often do not expect and sometimes don't understand. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, We come to encounter you. As we gather around a table, as we participate in a tradition that is millennia old of of bread and cup, we ask that you are present. Not that anything mythical or magical occurs through the elements, but that by them and with them and through them, we meet you as a visible sign of invisible grace, that you are present with us, to us, and for us, that you provide for us in the same way you sustain us in life. May you sustain our spirits and our souls 
as we engage in the work around us, the opportunities before us, the struggles within us. God, as we gather around the table, remind us why we do this and remind us of who you are. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.